We'll take your Trinity Psalter hymnal, if you would. Turn to page 947. Page 947. I preached the sermon oh, two and a half years ago or so, and we went a fair bit beyond this uh, in the larger catechism. And I'm returning to this one. My hope is to be able to return to my work in the larger catechism. I've been doing a number of other things. It would be on question 99, if you're wondering where I left off. I left off on 98, so that's where we'd pick up. And the session has asked me to do some more preaching here after Pastor Baker comes on certain Sunday evenings like I used to do in the old days, so I plan to return to that, a larger catechism focus. But for tonight, question 70, a very important question, obviously, uh, aren't they all, but very crucial to the Reformation and to our understanding of the gospel. Question 70, what is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. And so now we also read from 2 Corinthians, our scripture reading, scripture lesson is 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking in chapter 5, uh, particularly uh, at verses 19 to 21, but I want us to read beginning there in verse 16. Verse 16. This is God's Word. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this word. Take it home to all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, man in his fallen, sinful condition offends a holy God who is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. Though God, think of it this way, is the injured party. He's the injured party. He's the one to whom wrong has been done. Not man, man who is responsible for his sin. It's God who makes it all right. It's God who effectually calls and regenerates. We've seen in earlier catechism questions. He calls and regenerates his own, giving them faith and repentance. And upon the initial exercised 
of his gift of faith, God declares sinners trusting Christ alone to be righteous and holy in his sight. He declares sinners who trust Christ to be righteous and holy in his sight. What a marvel. Man is turned away from God, and God is the one who seeks and saves the lost, being the one who initiates and completes the whole process of reconciliation, as it's called here. We often miss that when we say we need to be reconciled to God because it's God who needs to be reconciled to us, first of all and chiefly. Yes, we who are all twisted and sinful in our thinking need to come back into fellowship with God. But it's really we who have offended God. He needs to be reconciled to us. And Paul and all gospel preachers are ambassadors to whom this message, this word of reconciliation has been entrusted, has been committed. And our task, our task in the church and our task particularly as ambassadors, as gospel preachers, our task is to to go and to proclaim to the world, to call all to be reconciled to God, proclaiming what God has done in Christ. So we say this reconciliation has all been accomplished. It needs only be applied by the Spirit to all who receive it with the empty hands of faith. And so the focus of our passage and of question 70 here is this remarkable, really quite unbelievable to the flesh, news that the Father has, in and by the Son, reconciled the world to Himself. Notice the language here. Not just Israel, not just some people somewhere, but people from every land and tribe and kindred and tongue. Imputing our sins to Christ and His righteousness to us so that we sinners are justified reckoned, as you may have heard it said, just as if I'd never sinned. That's, that's got a little something to it. Just as if I'd never sinned. So we see from question 70 in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21 particularly, that justification consists of four things we're going to think about. Four things. An act of God's free grace. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Secondly, pardoning and accepting sinners. It consists of God pardoning and accepting sinners. Thirdly, for the sake of Christ's work. For the sake of Christ's work. And then fourthly, received by faith alone. So we say justification consists of an act of God's free grace, pardoning and accepting sinners, for the sake of Christ's work, received by faith alone. Justification comes about as an act of God's free grace. And let's focus for just a moment on this this word act, the meaning of the word act here in the Westminster Standards. And you might say act, why do you want to focus on that? Because you'll notice as you go through this, uh, justification is said to be an act. If you look at question 74, adoption is said to be an act. But you look at question 75, and sanctification is said to be a work. 
It's a work. And is there a difference? Yes, there's a difference. They intend a difference here. An act, justification and adoption are designated as acts, is something that has reference to that which is external to us. It's an act. So, of course, what we're going to see is what the act of justification is based on. And thanks be to God, it's not based on anything that we are or have or do. Because if it were based on anything we are or have or do, we wouldn't be justified. We would be... What's the opposite of justified? Condemned. We would be condemned. So if our justification depends upon us in any sense, we're lost. We're condemned. So it's based on something outside of us. Justification is God's declaring us to be righteous. And that links us to something outside of us, to the work of Christ on our behalf. We'll see more of that in point three. But we need to get now that that it's an act means that it's not based on something that God himself even works within us, like regeneration, which is a work, or sanctification, we just saw it, which is a work. So we say justification is an act, a one-time declaration or determination of God. It's not a process like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's not dependent on faith foreseen or good works. Even when you think in terms of election, and some of you may have heard, you know, God saw that some would believe and he elected them or some would have good works. No, no, he saw that the whole world lay in sin is what he saw. And he set his love upon those that he chose. Notice here... And this brings us to the fact that it's free on God's part. Notice what question 70 says. Justification is an act of God's free grace. That means there's nothing in or about us that compels him to act as he does. So we don't compel him to act as he does, again, thankfully. Rather, he chooses to act as he does according to his own good pleasure He chooses to set his love upon us. This is what Ephesians 1.5 says. Loved us. He loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he saw us and he loved us in his son. And everything flows from that. Everything flows from his electing and choosing love. So it's an act of free grace. Notice this. It's an act of free grace to sinners. This is very important. And again, this is, if you understand that justification is declaring somebody righteous in condemnation, is declaring somebody worthy of death, you might even say, well, how can God justify a sinner? Now, we're sinners, right? And we could just say, ah, I'm going to overlook it, you know, we're just going to, you're okay, don't worry about it. A holy and righteous God is not going to look at sinners and say, you're fine. No problem. Don't worry about it. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He's a righteous God. If he did not concern himself with righteousness and holiness, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be who he is. And so this means, this means that his declaring us to be righteous must and does involve imputation. This brings in the doctrine of imputation. It's a necessary doctrine. Now, in recent years, people have denied imputation. And some people say, well, where is this here? Well, we're going to see it. We're going to drill down into this. 
But all imputation means is counting something of another to us. Think of it this way. Think if you were in gym class and the gym teacher said, the coach said, the coach, no. The coach said, if Billy makes this half-court shot, Billy is a braggart. He's always, I can make half-court shot. All right, no. So the coach has had it. He says, okay, if Billy makes this half-court shot, everybody gets free snacks. So everybody's like, oh, you know, and there's Billy at the half-court. If he makes the shot, he gets the free snacks. It's not that everybody in the class made the half-court shot. It's not that everybody did this thing. It's that Billy did this thing, and it's going to be counted to everybody. That's imputation. I mean, we can understand this. This is not something we can't understand. People act like this is ridiculous. I remember when our band director used to say when we were in a concert, or maybe you were in a choir concert, I remember him standing there and saying, we've chosen to perform this. And I remember one time there was this piece of music I really hated. And he's saying, we've chosen to perform this. And I'm thinking, you chose to perform. I don't like this piece of music. But he's the director. And he could do that, you see. The principle of substitution of one person acting for another. Of course, Adam, right, was our covenant head in the covenant of works. And if he obeyed, that would have been imputed to us. That would have been the half court shot that we would have all got the treats. But he didn't. He disobeyed, and that's imputed to us. And so you have here the principle of imputation, and it's seen, follow me closely here, please. It's seen in verse 19, because this is what it says, that specifically uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. How so? How was God reconciling the world to himself? How was he making the world right? A world of sinners. And it says this, not counting their trespasses against them. So it admits, it admits that God is justifying sinners because it talks about their trespasses, right? He's dealing with sinners. We read Paul saying in Romans that Christ died for the ungodly. While yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we didn't become whatever we are even now. We weren't good little boys and girls, or God didn't look down and see we would be good little boys and girls. And he says, well, okay, I'll I'll, I'll let Christ die for people like this. No, Christ died in the face of our miserable, wretched, vile, filthy sin. He died in the very face of it, and he died for it. He died for it. And so not counting their trespasses against them, this has to do with justification. Follow in verse 21. It has has to do with imputation. In verse 21, we read there, For our sake the Father makes Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. This is how he accomplished it. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is all by imputation. And the reason we know this is by imputation, please follow this, is because Jesus didn't become a sinner. Some people misread this. Notice what it says here. For our sake he made him to be sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But Jesus didn't become a sinner here. If he did, he couldn't save us. God, we've already established from Hebrews that he's God come in the flesh. We've already seen that he had no sin. And he could scarcely become a sinner here because God can't become a sinner. He wouldn't be God. Are are you with me here? Jesus couldn't become a sinner. So in what sense then does he become sin? By imputation. God reckons it. God looks at Adam's sin and all of your and my sin, all of its guilt, all of its shame, and he reckons Christ to be judicially guilty. And he treats him as if he is guilty. He treats him like he would treat us in condemning us and sending us to hell forever. Do you understand that? This is the heart of the gospel. God the Father treats Jesus the Son like he would treat us because he was constituted judicially guilty on our behalf. But he didn't actually, like some really goofy charismatics and others have said, become a a sinner for us. He became sin, meaning he was imputed with sin. And then notice what it says, because he doesn't stop being God. He can't stop being God. He continues to be holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So this righteousness is imputed also to us. Now notice this. Jesus doesn't become a sinner, and we don't become righteous so that we're no longer sinners. We're simul peccator at Eustace. We're still sinners, folks. We're righteous. If your hope and your faith and trust is in Christ, you're righteous. You're declared righteous. Righteousness is imputed to you. It's reckoned to you. It's figured to your account. It's like he has a million dollars and you have zip and he puts that in your account. But nobody in this room, because you trust Jesus and know this and are righteous, have stopped being a sinner. You get what I'm saying here? Jesus didn't become a sinner. He was judicially constituted as guilty of sin and was punished on that basis so that His righteousness might be given to us. Luther called this the glorious exchange. Christ takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. He takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. But we don't become righteous so that we're not sinners anymore. He didn't become sin so that He's not righteous anymore. Imputation is at work in this glorious exchange. So this is, this is what we're, we're looking at. This is kind of the key to this whole sermon here. An act of God's free grace. It's grace to sinners. And it's grace whereby He makes Christ to bear the sin of sinners, to bear our sin. And we get and we wear as a free gift His righteousness. So we say, secondly then, justification, God's free grace act. It's an act whereby He declares sinners to be righteous involves the pardoning and accepting of sinners. Note again how 70 puts it. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he does this. He pardoneth all their sins. So there's the pardon of sin. That's forgiveness. 
and he accepteth and accounteth their persons as righteous in his sight. So it's twofold here. It's twofold. He pardons us of our sin, but that, you could say, puts us in a neutral place. We just don't have any sin. But he also says, you're righteous. You're righteous. You know, we often talk about the courtroom, and there's properly you can speak about a courtroom here, but a judge in a courtroom doesn't typically say to somebody who's found not guilty, they just say, you're not guilty. You're not guilty of this, of this crime. They don't say you're righteous. I mean, sometimes judges even say, you're, you're not guilty on a technicality, but you disgust me, get out of my courtroom. I mean, people have said things like that. That's not the way it is with us. God declares us to be righteous. So key to justification is God's pardoning or forgiving and receiving us. God is a gracious, merciful, kind God who forgives us our sins. Consider the momentousness of our wrong against him vis-a-vis others wrong against us, right? We're told this a lot of time in the Bible. We have 10,000 talents that we owe God. We have a, 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 a debt we could never pay. You, you know this, the unforgiving servant. He has this, he's forgiven this enormous debt. And other people, you say, well, other people have sinned against us. It's a pittance. It's a pittance compared to our sin against God. And God is willing and does graciously, mercifully forgive our sin. We're going to have to hold in, in check here exactly why. We're getting, that's the third point. We're getting there pretty quickly. God treats us, you see, as if, in fact, we had not sinned. We talk about Jesus paying for our sin, being constituted judicially guilty, giving us his righteousness. As we say, we're guilty of Adam's first sin. That's imputed to us. He acting as our representative head. And all of our actual sins of omission and commission, our sins of negligence and failure, even our high-handed sins, Jesus paid it all. And God is more ready to wash us in the blood of Christ and robe us in his righteousness than we ever are to come. Surely this is amazing grace, especially since he took all the initiative. <laughs> he took all the initiative. I mean, you know how we are just by, by nature. Well, maybe I'm this way and you're not. But when somebody does you wrong, I mean, they've really done you wrong. And you say, let them come and say something. I'm not going to go to them. You let them come and say something. They're the ones not the way it was with God. He took the initiative. He reconciled us, taking us just as we are, pardoning us, and finding us, accepting us, acceptable. One theologian, whose name I won't say, but once defined justification as God finding us to be acceptable, though we're really quite unacceptable in and of ourselves, finding us to be acceptable, though we're really quite unacceptable. Not counting our trespasses against us. That's how. We've already talked about that. Verse 19, Christ reconciles the world. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By not counting the world's trespasses. And again, by world we mean God so loved the world. He means his own throughout the world. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. If you trust in Christ, he doesn't count your trespasses against you. 
This is part of his justifying work. He forgives you, he pardons you, and he accepts you, though you're quite unacceptable. Love so amazing, so divine. I mean, do, do you wonder, when you, when you get this, th- this is what inspires the hymn writers. This is what makes the hymn writers, the great hymn writers, write the hymns that we, that we so love, that we sing. I just mentioned love, so amazing, so divine, amazing grace, we could just go on. What wondrous love is this? Because when you understand this, that's what you say. This is amazing. This is beyond belief. No wonder we can say here, Paul is such an eager ambassador of this word of reconciliation. Paul says, I'm an ambassador. I go out and tell people about this. Well, no wonder. Who wouldn't want to, we might say? Who wouldn't want to go and to say, here is the truth. Here is what Christ has done for you. Will you not come to the one who can and will forgive all your sin? Who can forgive all your sin and accept you as righteous in his sight? By imputation. Christ took your sin by imputation and he gives you his righteousness by imputation. Well, this brings us to the third point. Why? Because he loved us. But on what basis does God forgive? He loves us, but he doesn't forgive out of the thin air, right? He forgives us on the basis, or for the sake, we might say, of the work of Christ. Again, not on the basis of anything that we are, have, or do. It's not on the basis even of anything that God works in us, like faith or repentance, or the good works that are the fruits of our believing in Christ. Now, again, back to, the, back to the catechism question. It's clear. It's an act of free grace, which he pardons our sins, accepts us righteous in his sight. Listen to this. Not for anything wrought in them. The word there is worked. Not for anything worked in them or done by them. So anything worked in them would be like faith and repentance or done by them, would be good works, the fruits of believing. But here's the reason. Only for the perfect obedience and the full satisfaction of Christ. This is why we're justified. This is why we're declared righteous. We're declared righteous not because of what we have done, because on the basis of what we've done, we would be condemned. But we're declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done because that's imputed to us. You say, well, you're, you're, you're repeating yourself. I'm trying to tie this together for you because I've actually found people who are in the church their whole lives and they don't get this clearly. And you should get this. And don't turn it off when you're, oh, imputation. Oh, that's some big theological word. Who cares? This is very important. This is, I, I'm telling you, you don't have the option of saying, ah, I don't care. Not caring is rejecting it. Not caring is rejecting it. You've got to understand this. Why wouldn't you want to understand this? That your sin is accounted, reckoned, imputed to Jesus and His righteousness to you. So we say that justification is based entirely and only on the perfect obedience, two parts here, the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Christ. The first, this perfect obedience, describes what we call the active obedience of Christ. We speak about that a lot here. 
whereby as the last Adam, Christ did what the first Adam failed to do, keep God's whole law. Adam was supposed to keep God's whole law in the covenant of works, and he failed in that. And so God has opened up in Genesis 3.15, 16, we see that right there where he gives that promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He gives right there what we call the covenant of grace. That's the beginnings of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is that in which Christ comes and fulfills all righteousness. He keeps the law that Adam didn't in the covenant of works. In the covenant of grace, Christ in a sense fulfills the covenant of works for us. He puts himself under the covenant of works and he goes back in a sense, you could say, and does what Adam didn't do and then he pays the penalty for what Adam did do and what we have done. There's a penalty for disobedience, but there needs to be both obedience and the payment of the penalty. You, you have heard me say this before. Again, I've, I've had people tell me, I, because I've written books on this, I've had people say, Doesn't it, isn't it all just taken care of at the cross? And I said, well, why don't you, if you, you know, I'm not suggesting that you owe the IRS anything, but let's say the IRS said, okay, you're $100 short in what you, you, you should have paid, or $1,000 short in what you should have paid, you owe us that money. And here's the penalty on it. Well, try paying just the penalty because that's the, that's the penalty for your wrongdoing. That's what you're being assessed because you didn't do the right thing. You failed to pay that $1,000. So, so send a letter to the IRS and say, Dear sirs and madam at the, mesdames at the IRS, here's the, here is the $28 penalty. You know, I'm very sorry that I, I made that mistake, but here's the penalty that you've assessed. Love, taxpayer. The IRS wants that penalty paid. And they want $1,000! Everybody here knows that. So this is the principle of the active obedience of Christ. It's not enough just to pay the penalty of the law. It's not enough just to go to hell. That pays the penalty. That paying the penalty brings you up to zero. You've got to have positive righteousness. It's Christ keeping the whole law for you. I mean, I did try this once as a kid. I was supposed to clean my room, and I didn't clean my room. We're going to go somewhere, have a treat after I cleaned it. And I'm told, you have to stay home because you didn't do what you were told. And now clean your room. And I said, well, wait a minute, though. If I have to stay home, that's the penalty, right? Right. Well, I have to do that and clean my room. Well, it's, it's a no-brainer when I say it to you. you know, I mean, you don't get out of cleaning your room, but I was a budding lawyer, and I thought maybe I could make a deal here. But my father was not Monty Hall. That doesn't mean anything to a lot of you, and I'm not going to explain it to you. Uh, it means something to those who are older, and that's enough. You remember, let's make a deal. I think there's a new let's make a deal, but I don't want to even talk about that. But... That's the situation. That's the active obedience of Christ. And the second describes the death of Christ for us, paying the penalty for original sin and all of our actual sins. So when it says here, the, uh, we're, we're, um, 
We're declared righteous, not for anything worked in us or done by us, but only for the perfect obedience, Christ keeping the whole law for us, and full satisfaction uh, of Christ. The satisfaction means his paying the penalty. That's what satisfaction is. Satisfaction means the penalty paid for something. That's, you call that rendering satisfaction. Uh, maybe, maybe you've watched movies. I mean, I come from a culture that used to be, if a man, a gentleman, were, this was a, an absurd practice, an unbiblical practice, but if a gentleman were insulted, he would throw down his glove or something like that and say, I demand satisfaction. That means I want to duel you. I mean, that's, you know, I was reading a kind of a Christian defense of this lately, and I was like, you're out of your tree, fella, because Christ, the Christian faith has always condemned that. You don't kill somebody because they insult you. Or, that's just the flesh. You can dress it up in all kind of finery and gloves and everything. <laughs> it's, you know, it's still wrong. But satisfaction, making it right. And that's what Jesus did in his death. So we say the basis for the forgiveness of sins by a holy God is the work of Christ. God can't remain holy and simply pretend as if we're not sinners, as if we haven't sinned. No, Christ's work meets Listen to this. And we sang this, and there are other hymns in which we sing things like this. Christ's work meets the demands of justice so that the frowning wrath of God that was turned on Christ when he was constituted sin for us, verse 21, becomes the smiling satisfaction of justice that requires after Christ living and dying for us no more. Christ lived for us and died for us. And Newton, we didn't sing that hymn, but Newton in his hymn says, justice smiles and asks no more. It's satisfied. Justice is satisfied. So God doesn't forgive us. God doesn't justify us. He doesn't declare us to be righteous without our wearing and bearing the imputed righteousness of Christ. And this is how it comes about. God's justice is upheld because Christ kept the law for us, Psalm 15, and paid for our disobedience. It's as if our sins were a massive debt. Think of it that way. Christ, His death for us wipes it out, and His life for us gives us a a positive credit. It's like you owe a million, His death pays it, you're now at zero, and His positive Righteousness of his act of obedience gives you a million to the good. Jesus became sin by imputation. We become righteousness by imputation. Double imputation is at work making our sins Christ, this this glorious exchange, and his righteousness ours, which is what these verses in 2 Corinthians 5 beautifully describe. So yes, God, point four. We're coming to the end here. Yes, God, by an act of His free grace to sinners, pardons all of our sins and accepts and accounts us as righteous in His sight, not for anything worked in us or done by us, but only for the perfect righteousness, excuse me, the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to us. There's the imputation. By God imputed to us, all being received by faith alone. All of this is done and declared as a forensic act, as a verdict in a courtroom in which we're proclaimed not guilty, we're pardoned, 
and furthermore, were proclaimed to be righteous, were accepted as righteous, all because of what Christ did for us. As I said this morning, I say about this, Christ's suffering was a remarkable gift to you. All of this that we speak of is a remarkable gift to you, tied up, as it were, with a bow and given to you. Martin Luther, you may recall, and I've mentioned this when I preach on Psalm 15, as he read Romans 1, couldn't get away from what it says about the righteousness of God. And Luther understood that God required from him a righteousness that he could not produce. He tried. He tried day and night. He fasted. He prayed. He beat himself. He pierced his flesh with thorns. He was in the monastery doing every sort of thing until he realized that the righteousness that God requires, he wasn't wrong to see that God required this. Where he was wrong was thinking he could in some way achieve it. And he came to realize that the righteousness that a holy God requires is a gift that he gives freely. Received by faith alone, by the empty hands of faith. And Luther said, when he realized that, the gates of paradise opened. And I did enter in. As he recognized that a holy God had provided as a free gift the righteousness needed to come into his holy presence. And the empty hands of faith Receive this gift, believingly, joyfully, trustingly. Faith brings nothing to the table. Faith is not about doing, it's about believing. We speak about faith as knowing, believing, trusting. Faith is about receiving without addition what another has done for you. Receiving what Christ has done for you, not adding to it. Faith looks entirely and solely to Christ. This is why, as verse 17 says, we're new creations when we believe. When we believe, we're new creations. We have an exchanged identity. We have a new outlook because God who rejects sin now accepts our persons and counts us as righteous. Think about this in light even of your sin, the sin that you struggle so much with. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus This message will preach. This message will preach Nathan and Elizabeth. I know they were here. They went, maybe they're attending to their children. Um, But you can hear this, Nathan and Elizabeth. This This is a great passage. I know you're, Nathan, not yet ordained. But... This is why we go to the world. I mean, Paul is saying we're ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is what you can go to Uganda and say. Jesus paid it all. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Hear me, Ugandans. Come to Jesus. And we can, we can apply that all throughout Africa. And Asia, and the continents of the sea, and Europe, and North America, and South America, 
The whole world needs to hear this message. This is the message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is, yes, you're a sinner. You've done your worst. But God gave you His very best. His only Son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived for you, obeyed the law for you, and died for you, satisfied divine justice. And all that is imputed to you, received by faith alone. You need believe. You need trust. Abandon all hope here and look to Him and Him alone. This will preach. Be reconciled to God and know the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, or rather the righteousness of Christ. Know the resurrection, the righteousness of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, a whole new life. We have a perfect righteousness because Christ lived and died for us and we have an exchanged life in Him. So your call is to trust in Him. And this is the message we herald as ambassadors to a needy and dying world. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this word, this great doctrine that we who ought to be condemned declared guilty and worthy of death are declared holy and righteous not because of anything worked in us or done by us, but because of the perfect work of Christ, because of His perfect obedience and full satisfaction, living and dying for us. Father, thank You. Thank You for this. And make us joyful proclaimers of it to all those about us, particularly make those who You would call as ministers or who are ministers throughout the world to be fearless proclaimers of this. We pray it in Jesus' name.